You're listening to the Zoe Turner Podcast, business and mindset conversations that will help you move from fear and uncertainty to development and growth so that you can crush both life and business. Please welcome your host, Zoe Turner. Today's guest is the master of reinvention. He had a prominent jewelry empire that famously came crashing down overnight in the 90s, losing in today's money over a billion pounds, all because of an ill-fated joke during his infamous speech at the Royal Albert Hall. Gerald has a new Gerald has a new book out called Reinvent Yourself. It is a guide to show how you can reinvent your life, be successful and achieve your potential to create lasting opportunity for business success. Welcome to the podcast today, Gerald. Thank you, Zoe. I'm nice gonna, to see you. I'm going to struggle with this name. <laughs> I've, been called, I've been called worse. Have you? Oh, that's good. First of all, congratulations on the success of your book. Thank you very much. And what are you grateful for today? Well, I'm grateful that uh, I'm doing this podcast with you because it's nice to be doing something because, you know, I normally do about 50 or 60 speeches a year, which I love and enjoy, and I've missed them. So it's nice to be hearing my own voice again. Well, thank you so much for that. I recall when I read your book... And a social social interaction. This is your first book, not your second book. Social interaction was really important for you. One thing that you used to love back in the day was going into the shops and speaking to the managers and speaking to all the staff, doing all the, you know, stuff on the ground. So I guess when everything came crashing down and you didn't have that, that must have been really tough for you. And in a way, quite similar to what you're experiencing now with not doing your your speeches. Well, this is really the worst of all worlds because, yeah, as you say, I used to love the camaraderie uh, and the morale that we'd built up in the company. And I spent every Friday out on the road visiting the shops, chatting to the managers. And I I love that. You know, I'm a people's person. Uh, I love talking to people, learning from people. And I used to learn more actually from the managers than I did from the directors. I always feel it's better to go to the grassroots to really know what's going on in a company. So yeah, when I lost my job, that was one of the things that I really missed, um, being on my own again, uh, having to rely on myself for my for company uh, rather than other people. So I became a bit insular. So I did a lot of cycling, which I love, but it's not the same as sort of um, mixing with people and networking. Um, and now, so then when I started doing the speeches, I really enjoyed that. Not only doing the actual speech, but spending the whole day chatting to everybody in the companies. Uh, that's now been taken away. So I'm going to really appreciate it when it starts all over again. When you think back to that speech, your fateful speech that day at the Royal Albert Hall, what do you think now when you when you watch it back and you hear what you said? Well, 
it was a bit uh, of a dumb thing to say, um, ill-judged, but it it shouldn't have had the reaction that it's had. And here, us, you know, here we're talking about it 30 years later. It'll be 30 years in April. Not that I'll be celebrating that milestone. But, um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I've never blamed the press or anybody else for my demise. I only blame myself. It was a mistake. Uh, but there's one, I don't know who said it, probably Richard Branson, that one thing is certain in business is that you will make mistakes. I just happened to make the biggest corporate mistake in history. Knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to your younger self, the younger, Ger the younger Gerald, going into that speech on that day? Well, probably wouldn't do the speech at all. <laughs> You'd listen <laughs> to your wife. <laughs> listen to my wife, yeah. I know, I mean, what's the upside of uh, being high profile these days? You know, you're only going to get, you know, Donald Trump now, he has achieved quite a lot. He's a billionaire and uh, he became president of the United States. You can't really achieve much more than that, yet all he ever gets is criticism and uh, nasty comments about him. You know, he's probably one of the most hated people around. So... In this day and age, I can't see a lot of point. I don't want to sound cynical. I can't see a lot of point in being high profile. A lot of the businessmen that I know that are the most successful actually pay people to keep themselves out of the newspapers. Um, so, yeah, I was, I mean, if I wasn't as high profile as I was, I wouldn't have got the flat that I got. I probably wouldn't have got asked to do the speech in the first place. But I was, you know, courting the press, doing a lot of um, features and stuff like that. And I was very well known. And it, and we were benefiting to a certain degree uh, because it wasn't only the Ratner shops. We had Ratner's and H. Hamlet and Ernest Jones. And because my name was Ratner, Ratner's were doing very, very well because of it. So I, but that wasn't really the reason why I did so much press. I, I probably like to see my picture in the paper. It's, a, it's, it's a narcissistic. And uh, and you see people making that same mistake today. So the answer to your question is, it's all very well. I was, I was a lot younger, it was 30 years ago, was to show some restraint and to uh, say no and to not uh, accept every invitation you get to um, appear in, you know, in the press or, or at the Albert Hall. What a lot of people okay. don't actually know is that you owned most of the jewellery shops in the high street. It wasn't until I read your book that that I I knew this, like H Samuels. And that was I, I get confused did. with Beaver jo Beaver Brooks and Ernest yeah. Jones. It was Beaver Brooks, yeah. yeah. No, that was the. I tried to buy Beaver Brooks. They brilliant company, brilliantly run, and it's a lot more difficult to buy companies that are really well run. No, I I, I had an unprecedented fifty percent of the jewelry market. There's very few people that have 50% of a, of a market. And uh, we had that with Ratner's, H. Samuel, Ernest Jones, Leslie Davis, Watch of Switzerland, Dales. Uh, yeah, and um, many, many more. And we had a thousand shops in America. So people just think of it as the budget priced high street chain of Ratner's. Uh, but that actually is not correct it was a group I have to say if I 
would think back to the 80s when I was a little urchin, as my friend's mum used to call me, in my ripped jeans, <laughs> getting the bus or the train to like Middlesbrough, Middlesbrough High Street in Darlington, and walking past the Ratner's Jewelers store and the H. Samuels, that I would actually be sat here right now interviewing you. Well, yeah, I, I probably, when I was running those shops, was not the same person as I am today. Um, I was sort of uh, rushing around like a lunatic, you know, with this tunnel vision expanding at the rate of knots. And, uh, of course, now I've got a lot of time to reflect on that and I'm much more balanced. And, uh, you know, as they say, you repent. Sorry, you, you sin at your... You sin in haste and you repent in your leisure. Uh, so I spent quite a lot of time repenting um, what I did, even though it's not the greatest crime in the in history. It did have massive negative effects, as you're well aware of, because we did have a fair business. You say you're different. You're a different person now to what you were then. How different are you? Well, I now much more measured. And uh, my best friend, Michael, said to me that, um, he said, you're much nicer now. And I said, well, I'd rather be much richer and not so nice like I used to be. Uh, so, yeah, you do become probably, you know, when they say, when you lose your job and they say you're going to spend more time with your family, uh, that cliche, it's true, you do spend more time and you become better at, at being a father and a, a husband it is a fact that if you're running a company and you're obsessed with growing it that you can't juggle everything in one go and some certain things do suffer and i think in those days when i was running ratness that was the only thing that mattered to me i was obsessed with the success of it and uh, a lot of other things fell by the wayside you know i was listening to Arsene Wenger on Desert Island Discs, and he was saying that he's not, he's the first to admit he's not a great father or, or husband because the Arsenal took over his life. And it does, and that, that is the danger, it does take over your life. So when I left, I started uh, doing all the things that I tried to avoid all those years. <laughs> but actually, I'm better off really uh, to have a more balanced life and to not be just obsessed with one particular thing one particular thing um you know and now if I go to a dinner party or something I'm sort of just sort of thinking about my business and myself I'm very interested in what other people have to say so I'm not in such a hurry to do everything you know I can wait for a lift I'm more measured I would say but maybe that's just a being older I guess so yeah you mentioned then about your friend Michael <clears throat> Michael Green that's right. Well, I can is. see you. You've done your research. So Tony Robbins very famously says that um, our friends um, are a di. So the way we are, what's what's the quote? How we are is the way we act. Ah, do you know what? I've just forgotten that quote. <laughs> but anyway, they say. Well, is it something like uh, you know who your friends are or something no, like that? No, it's not. I've got it written yeah. down somewhere. I've said this quote like a million and one times before. What's the gist of it? But it's so it's basically he says that you, we are 
an expectation, the way we are, it's an expectation of, of our peer group. Because they say that we're an average of the five people that we hang around with. So back yes. in the day, you hung around with friends who later came on to be very, very successful. How important do you think your peer group was to you in those days for you being a success? And, you know, was that a driver within your career? It was the main driver. It was everything. Um, I could see that Michael Green, uh, at quite a young age, was achieving a hell of a lot. Uh, he floated his company. Shares went mad. And then he started doing deals, expanding the company. He was in the newspapers. Uh, Charles Saatchi, the same thing. And uh, I was still, you know, working sort of with my father and um, making losses and... Uh, quite well off. I wasn't struggling in any way, but I wasn't uh, becoming a superstar like them. Uh, so I wanted to be like them. So, you know, that's one of the reasons that I got rid of, I got rid of my father, uh, because uh, I wanted to really drive the business. I wanted to be the boss. Um, so, yeah, I mean, early on, they were enormous. When I say I get rid of my father, I put... <laughs> <laughs> I made him chairman and I was managing director before then. He was chairman and manager. So I, didn't, I didn't do him in or anything like that. Yeah, and I, he made a lot of I money. Knew, I knew what you meant then, but I guess yes. some people who haven't read your book and don't know the yes. whole story probably wouldn't have known what you were talking about. No. But no, he was, no, I, um, you know, you basically felt that a lot of his, it, you didn't feel that the business was progressing with him. And I think he'd got quite poorly. He'd had a fall or something and he would say yeah. quite inappropriate things to people at work. And it was having a negative impact on, on the business at the time. And you could let things roll on because after all, we still had 130 shops. We weren't starving. We were going nowhere. We were sort of also rands as far as anyone was concerned, but you know, there's a lot of companies, family businesses that are like that. They don't, they're not ambitious. They don't care. Uh, as long as they make a reasonable living, they just let it carry on. So I could have allowed that to have just gone on and on. But because of Charles and Michael, to a certain extent, uh, I felt that I didn't want that status quo anymore, that I was bored with, with what was going on. Uh, also, the catalyst was H. Samuel, who course we were to acquire later on try to acquire us so there was a danger there that I'd lose my job altogether so yeah I suddenly at the age of 34 made the move told my father that he has to give way which I didn't really have the support of the board but I said to him that I did and then um, when I went to the board I said that he wants to resign which was not entirely true but you know, there's loads of stories like that in business where people tell little white lies um, to achieve what they want to achieve. Um, Brewdog, for instance, they started up their company. They couldn't raise any cash. Uh, and they went to a bank and said that we've just been offered a big loan by the people across the road. If you're prepared to beat it, uh, we'll go with you. And, you know, this goes on all the time. And I think if you play everything by the book, you'll get nowhere. So um, I achieved what I wanted to achieve and was take control and change the business dramatically overnight, really um, put a huge amount of energy into it, changed all the products, changed all the marketing, 
and uh, it was hugely successful, uh, which allowed us to acquire all our competitors, basically, in the UK. Yeah, what's really interesting is you reinvented yourself after your demise, so to speak, but you also reinvented the jewellery business itself. Essentially, you kind of made gold jewellery, like cost, costume jewellery, yeah? It was kind of like the same the same price. It was more accessible to the lower income, people on a lower income and the working class. So it was kind of jewellery that they would go out and buy to go out on a Saturday, Friday night, and rather than jewellery for life. And that, That's had, absolutely that right. hadn't been seen before within the jewellery business. No, no jewellery was a once-in-a-lifetime purchase. It was a province of the rich, like air travel used to be, or going out to eat. Uh, people, working class people, places like Liverpool, Newcastle, couldn't afford to buy jewellery at all. But gold actually... Um, is very pliable and if you little piece of gold you can roll out from here to edinburgh mm -hmm. so we used gold in a totally different way which is basically used less of it uh, so the earrings that we sold and the chains and stuff were much lighter and much cheaper and we promoted them uh, in a big way over the more expensive products like diamond rings put them in the front of the window uh, offered them at very low prices and then again, um, it's important that your surroundings, if you're selling at low price, your surroundings are not too posh. So we, we pulled up the expensive carpet and pulled down the chandeliers, threw out the velvet pads, played pop music, and um, people are much more comfortable, especially young people, coming into a jeweler's than they ever were, because I always felt there was a what I call a threshold barrier, and then walking into the shops, uh, terrified that they were going to be forced to spend a lot of money. So this completely changed all that. It was scorned upon by the other jewellers who thought we were degrading everything. But as I said, it was hugely successful. In fact, we were taking more money in our shops than any other retailer in Europe per square foot, which was quite new incredible achievement and you still did uh, have high-end jewelry in there and uh, within Ratners you still so I mean I remember a year ago when I was chatting to my dad and he's got a new girlfriend I've been together a couple of years now and I was talking about you it was a year ago saying that I'd love to have you on the podcast and of course I remember she's her husband unfortunately passed away of Alzheimer's um, a few years ago now. But I remember her saying to me, she said, oh, yeah, when all that happened, she said, Tom, she said, I remember we bought our, Tom bought my, um, I think it was either the wedding ring or the engagement ring from Ratner's. And she said he never bought me rubbish. She said he always bought good quality stuff. And then obviously when that joke happened and, you know, Ratner's the kind of name kind of became associated with jewellery that wasn't that high end I guess for people that had spent that money that had kind of invested you know that their earnings maybe they did just feel like their noses were out of joint a little bit oh definitely but you know it's a misconception that I ever said you know, jewellery was crap I, I referred to one particular item a sherry decanter uh, which we acquired uh, when we bought H Samuel 
which was a cut glass sherry decanter with six glasses on a silver I got tray. The, I, I, got what resin- I was, was going to make a comment <laughs> about that. <laughs> I just refrained myself. I'm sure that's very good quality crystal. But funny you no just picked idea. that up as I said that. I know, that was hilarious. Well, look, I'm going to be completely honest with you. I got a cup of tea because I've just been rushing around all morning. So I got a cup of tea and then I put a bottle of water and I thought, look, it's it's just not very pleasant or very polite if I take a drink, a swig out of my <laughs> bottle of water. So I went in the kitchen and there was some Ikea glasses and there was these and I thought, oh, cut glass. <laughs> well, that, you know something, I bet they're quite low price as well. And um, But yeah, I mean, uh, I, I shouldn't have made a joke about that, but I never, ever, in fact, in that same speech, you'll be absolutely shocked to hear that I said that we've achieved what we uh, achieved by selling high-quality products sold by high-quality staff. I mean, that's on the internet, my whole speech. Uh, but we do this sherry decanter. But, so, but it, I was totally misquoted. But um, as I said, I'm not blaming anybody. You know, that's uh, I shouldn't have used that word crap at all. But we wouldn't have got to 50% of the jewellery market uh, by selling crap. Nobody's ever done that. It's totally impossible, especially young people who've got very good eyesight. And unless the claws holding that diamond and that diamond beautifully sparked, they won't buy it. They buy it all on looks and you won't sell anything unless it's the highest quality. In fact, when I took over from my father, first thing I did was close the factory that we had that was manufacturing diamond rings uh, for the shops and that that factory in my view was not producing quality uh, jewelry in any way and they were very lazy because they had a customer that would just buy everything that they said because they made because we owned it so I closed that down and told the buyers they could buy from whoever they liked so I was it was absolutely imperative that we had the highest quality and that is the irony of the um, stigma that we then had after the speech but again Probably my fault. You say oh, it was bear. the dog. You're, you're well uh, researched. This bear is um, is twelve and a half, and he's got some fat lumps. So we he's gone to the vet, and the vet tested them. And at the moment, I'm very very worried that you know it might be something serious. I'm oh, praying that it isn't. And I know I know it's only a dog. Not only a dog. Them. Yeah, I can. I know you. And you love your animals, and that was going to be. I know you had your incident with a cat. Yeah, look, I love all animals. I'm more of a dog person, but yeah, I did. Um, I rescued a cat recently, and I've been feeding this cat for five weeks in the park near the running track. Yeah. And obviously, I developed a relationship with it. I mean, it was the most adorable, beautiful cat ever. And one day I just thought, right, I'm going to take her because all the other cats around there had disappeared. Municipality takes them in Dubai and apparently uh, they euthanize them. So they kill them. But this one was that friendly. I think she'd escaped the wrath of municipality. And I I took her and I rescued her. And um, but what I didn't post on my Facebook about that was literally two days later, the family who I placed her with lost her, like a brand new baby kitten, um, in, you know, completely just taken off the street, out of her surroundings, scared, frightened. They put her in the garden and she jumped the wall. That was when we were supposed to have our last, because um, we'd scheduled in this this interview for Christmas. I was literally just in no 
state of mind because I would literally just camp down next to a bush. We located her. She was quite far away from the home, but she was living in the middle of a bush. In, in there was, it was kind of like a dual carriageway. And it was just a matter of time before she got knocked over. Mm. So I, yeah. was, I was there for like seven or eight hours trying to catch her. Fantastic. Finally got her in a, in, a, in, a, in a trap. We had to, you know, she would come to me. It just goes to show how scared and what fear can do to these poor little animals. Well, this is what, you know, upsets me. Um, and I don't think I would have another dog after this because it's just too upsetting uh, when, they, when they're ill and they get old and they suffer. And um, the last dog I had, which is a chocolate Labrador, I cried when he died, which I didn't actually do that when my, my parents died. So there's obviously something wrong with me. Um, but I get very, very close uh, to the dog because, you know, since I lost my job, I, I have time to spend a lot of time walking the dog and being with the dog. And uh, What positive influences do animals have in your life? What is it about having a dog that, that, that you love? Well... He loves me, you know, with all the stuff that I get on Twitter every day, all the abuse and stuff like that. It's nice to have somebody who actually adores you. Um, he just, I'm like, I'm working out this morning in the um, drawing room with my TRX, you know, these bands that you pull. And he just comes in, pushes the door open with his head, comes in, gives me a lick on my nose, and then walks out again. And then he just came in to give me a kiss, you know, so... Their love is totally unconditional. Uh, they, you know, and they're always, you know, when somebody comes to the door, they wag and they like everybody. And when I had my health clubs, I always said, you know, try and be like a Labrador, you know, really make somebody, when you greet somebody, give them a big smile and make them feel welcome. Like my dog does. They thought I was mad. But actually, one of the most important things in the health club was um, smiling because people, like you're smiling at the moment, people look a million times better when they smile. I've got a big problem. I, never, I don't smile enough. <laughs> oh, no, miserable sort. Yeah, definitely. Smiling, it mm. just changes the energy completely. Sometimes when I'm yeah. watching my videos back and I'm, th I'm looking and I'm a little bit nervous and I'm not smiling, it just, it's not the same. Everybody looks, everyone looks good when they smile, except some, you sometimes get these politicians who, these sort of elderly men who put on these ridiculously false smiles and uh, that doesn't come off particularly. And it's really quite unpleasant. Gerald, you mentioned earlier about family when we were first talking. You were talking about your, you know, your friends when you were younger and then your family. And almost like, you know, you, you maybe had some regrets in your early days that, you know, you didn't give the time and the attention to your family. But one impression that I did get it's like you were a very good father, you know, despite you being in a prominent position. So, you know, obviously everyone wanted a piece of you. You were still enjoyed being a father and, and you were a very good father, you know, to the best of your ability at the time. Mm. How important is family to you? Well, yeah, I mean, I just love, um, you know, getting up on a Saturday morning with the children and taking them out where there's the swings or something like that. I don't know what I'd do with myself, you know, without having 
the, the house full of children. That's what I've always, I was like that with my parents. It was always a family thing. Uh, or, you know, just the, the buzz in the house. And this very lonely house when you're just uh, on your own or even with your wife, as much you love her. Uh, there's something about children and the dog uh, that makes for company and uh, gives you sort of, when you wake up in the morning, gives you something to do that you really enjoy. And that's what I've been doing all my life. And um, I'm very lucky that my son, who's going to be 30 this year, is still at home. So um, I rely on him to entertain me and we um, go out on cycle rides and we uh, get our Indian takeaway together and go for walks and um, play with the dog and stuff like that. So I'm very lucky. You know, I've had that all my life, which I just love. And, uh, you know, I just love children, That's well, my own children. My wife says you only like your own children, which is not exactly true. <laughs> I've got I think parents are always biased. Go back to when you were 19 and you were, you were on holiday in, in Monte Carlo. You heard some really devastating news about your sister. And unfortunately, she'd taken an overdose and, um, and and she passed away. What impact did losing your sister have on on your family at the time? And did the circumstances maybe around that, did that affect any any of your future decisions in the future in terms of raising your children, possibly? Yeah, it did, definitely. Um, yeah, you're right. I was with my first wife in Monte Carlo. In fact, we hadn't even got married yet. Um, and uh, she received the phone call that my sister had, um, who was 21, had taken an overdose and died. Uh, so we flew back to straight away, obviously. Um, and this was really because her name is Juliet, was uh, engaged to um, somebody who was non-Jewish. And my parents objected to the wedding and insisted that he converted, which he tried to do, but it just went on and on and the rabbi in those days, Orthodox rabbi was not as receptive to this as they are today. And at the latest setback, he decided that he can't go on with this any longer. So he ended the relationship. I don't blame him for that at all. I, I blame my parents for forcing him to change his religion. So my sister uh, was, was just devastated and uh, whether she meant to kill herself or not, but she took vodka and pills and stuff like that. Uh, so what that taught me was not to um, try and force your children to be what you want them to be. Let them get on with it. Don't insist, um, you know, that they do this or do that. Um, let them go their own way. Uh, don't try and dominate them and don't try and force them and I've got four children and I don't, I just let them, you know, I say how much I love them and help them when they need it, but I don't, I tend to let them get on with things. And in fact, I uh, speaking to somebody the other day who's got four daughters and I said, how come your daughters, you've managed to get four daughters that are all so successful? One's a barrister, one's a doctor, one's a nurse. Uh, one's an accountant. They're all, they're all high achievers. What's your secret? And he says, well, I've just ignored them all my life. So maybe that's going to the other extreme. But there is this danger that my parents tried to craft Juliet in the way, you know, that didn't 
you can't, you could take a horse to the water, you can't make it drink, you know? And they made a big mistake, so I've learned from that. Apart from that, they were wonderful parents. Yeah. They were wonderful parents for me. They made a big mistake there, which I can understand in those days because the Jewish fraternity was like a little ghetto in Hendon where everyone was Jewish and it was a bit of a stigma uh, to marry outside, as they said. Uh, fortunately, now it's very different. Let's move on to something a little bit lighter. And, and thank you. Thank you for, for answering that, because I know it's probably quite uncomfortable thinking about it. So let's talk about your book. What motivated you to write this book? When did you get the idea and, and how was the process? And tell us about your collaboration with Rob. Rob more kindly asked me to do some mentoring in Dubai. Uh, and then afterwards, it was in the Cayman Islands. Um, and it kept coming up, basically, that a job's not for life anymore. But there's benefits in switching horses midstream. That if you're in a job that is not working, uh, in the old days, you just put up with it, just like where I was talking about putting up with my family business, where it was going nowhere. Nowadays, people are not prepared to put up with the status quo. You know, if things are not working, then you, even if it's a marriage or a friendship or a business, then there's no point in life's too short to just carry on with it. You need major surgery. You need to cut the ties. And that's quite a brave thing to do. I mean, my children moved jobs, uh, which I was worried about because I felt they, were, they had a perfectly good, secure job. One of the economists, one as a school teacher. Uh, why risk that by changing to another job? You know, I was worried that they were going to be not have a job at all, but they both changed to huge, huge benefit. Uh, and other statistics are that you do benefit from changing job more than not benefit. And especially with the pandemic and the onset of the pandemic, where a lot of us, our businesses, we've got to have a rethink. Our businesses will never be the same again. They've been wiped out. Uh, I felt the time was right, as Rob did. Uh, to write a book about reinvention and, and, and to talk about how we can avoid the obstacles that are associated with that. For instance, with money. When I started my health club business, I didn't have any money. I'd been wiped out by, by the speech. And uh, I took a site in Henley, which I didn't uh, have the money to, to buy. It was three quarters of a million pounds. I didn't even have... 750 pounds, I was in debt. But I told the lawyer, the estate agent that I was going to buy it. I put it into solicitor's hands. And I then put an advert in the paper, the local paper, and started selling membership for a non-existent club. I hadn't bought it. Yes, it was in solicitor's hands, but I had no way of finalising the deal, completing the deal. So I sold membership. Uh, and I put a drawing of how it was going to look slight exaggerated about how wonderful it was going to be uh, and I offered a free joining fee which was very generous of me considering I hadn't bought the place but I got 850 people to sign up and in the end it was actually the bank manager's wife who'd also signed up which I think helped me 
borrow the money, but I would never have borrowed the money. I would have never been able to raise the money if I didn't have 850 direct debits that people had signed up for a club, which I didn't own, a building that I had nothing to do with. Uh, so I started, and I sold it for four million pounds two years later. So I started that business with nothing. Uh, I blagged my way into uh, selling memberships. Uh, it was one of the greatest moments of my life because I'd been absolutely skint for seven years to suddenly come into this money. But I managed to do it without any capital. So I talk about that a lot. That if that's people's barrier, the, the main barrier people say, well, I can't leave my job and start up a business because I don't have any money. You don't need any money. Go and sell something. There's an old saying that don't skin the bear till you sold the, uh, sorry, it's a very un unfortunate analogy with my dogs called bear, but don't, uh, don't skin the bear till you've sold the skin or something like that. Uh, or is it the other way around? I know don't what you mean. I've heard this before. You, yeah. It's like me with my Tony Robbins quote. <laughs> Which I uh, so what I would do, don't shoot the bear till you sold its skin or something like that. Yeah, but I would, like that. Uh, I would definitely uh, sell the skin. And then if I did sell the skin, I'd then go out and shoot the bear. If I had a customer for the skin, I wouldn't just go out and shoot the bear to hope. So I wouldn't start a business and um, spend a lot of money on offices, hire staff, do a lot of advertising, set myself up with this huge expense, hoping that I'm going to bring in business. I would try and bring in business, and then if I'd brought in business, then start investing in money in offices and stuff. I'd do it the other way around. Yeah, that was genius what you did at that time. That everything that had happened, being in a place of depression and hitting rock bottom, to be able to not in not inherit a business from your father. I know you you changed the face and you you know you really increased the profits. Um, you know with the jewelry, you know with Ratners and the jewelry empire. Father initially set that business up. After this, you started this with literally nothing, which proves that you had the skill set and the business acumen and the motivation and the determination and the commitment to succeed in business. It's a wonderful thing to build something from scratch, to create something that didn't exist before. You know, if you look at all the FTSE companies today, they're just people that have come in hired to run that business. And they'll leave in seven years and somebody else will come and run it. That isn't the same as starting your own business and building it up. There's no, there's no comparison with that. That's why I admire the people that did that rather than people that just come in as chief executives and then move on to the next challenge. When you lost everything and you were at rock bottom and you were going through, you know, this period of time where you were just sat at home alone, was there a, a moment, a defining moment that you can remember when you just said, right, this has got to end. I've really just got to sort myself out, pull my socks up and make something happen. I was, uh, as you say, I was at home for seven years uh, watching Countdown in the afternoon. <laughs> Carol Vorderman. Yeah, it was a much better programme when she was uh, doing it. And in fact, I, my great thing was when I met her, when I did Celebrity Apprentice, she was on that. Uh, so it was a great thing to meet her. Uh, but it wasn't a good thing to do, to sit at home watching Countdown. Uh, but my wife threatened to throw me out unless I got a job because we'd built up 
debts and stuff. Uh, and I was really, had given up. So when she threatened to do that is when I went out and uh, started up the gym. I thought I had no choice. Sometimes you do need somebody in those situations to give you a kick up the arse. Uh, so I was thankful to her for doing that. I probably would have still been in bed today watching Countdown if it wasn't for her. If you were to start out in business like all over again now, what do you think you would do? Would you go into the jewellery business or knowing what you know now, what would you do? Well, you know, I was in the jewellery business in the 80s at the best possible time. We had Margaret Thatcher uh, running things, who was the best prime minister we've ever had. She makes everybody that's come after her look sort of pretty second rate. And I was fortunate enough to meet her a few times. Uh, she was my hero. But she made business, she made, you know, the, the whole, she gave business an opportunity. She realised the importance of business because, you know, if people are out buying things in the shops, then they give jobs to people and those people are earning money, they spend money. Uh, it's a correlation. The most important thing are actually in an economy is, is the shops, people buying things. Uh, that fuels the economy. Uh, and we're not getting that now. But I was in the right business at the right time. I then went into the health club business when there was no competition. That was at the right time. I then went online in 2001 when it was unfashionable. Built a business, 25 million turnover. So I was in the businesses at the right time. I got out at the right time. Uh, not that I chose to get out of my first business. but So I would go into something that was unfashionable not a business that everybody feels is a panacea and just follow people like sheep. Uh, I always feel that you should be doing something where there isn't the competition. I mean, when we started online, it cost us paper clicks to sell an eternity ring, three pounds uh, to, uh, to, to paper clicks to sell a 200 pound eternity ring. Paper clicks now it's about £150 to sell that same eternity ring because there's so many people that are trying to sell that eternity ring. So to me, that's the time to move on. Uh, so I would go into a business that is unfashionable and it might not even be anything to do with the uh, internet. As long as you do it well uh, and you don't think there's a quick buck to be made and you're a good salesman because that's part and parcel of everything that we do is selling. I've got a friend who had a Christmas cracker business. He sold crackers to Tesco, Sainsbury's. He sold his business for seven million pounds. The people who took over were not salesmen. So the buyers at Tesco and Sainsbury's never bought any more crackers. There wasn't the crackers that were so good. It was his selling. Uh, there's another guy who sold his business selling hangers to Marks and Spencers for 85 million pounds. He sold his business to the management. I mean, there's nothing sexy uh, about hangers. But again, he was a salesman and he knew how to sell his product. I've always been very proficient at marketing. A friend of mine, um, he knows somebody who buys knives from China, repackages them. So it's a private label brand and makes it look like they're, they're made in Germany. He's built a hugely successful business of this and massive success. People think they're getting German knives, basically. I mean, they're very good quality, but he's just put a German name on them and, and just repacked them and marketed them, marketed them really, really well. 
Yeah, I mean, I built my business to the world's largest jewellers with profits of £125 billion, which was a in 1991 is the equivalent of a billion pound profit. There's not a lot of retailers that are making a billion pound profit today. I don't know of any. Uh, but that was done on marketing, on selling. And I always instilled that into the managers. Sell, sell, sell. And we put them on massive incentive schemes, which was unheard of in those days. We even had our van drivers on incentive schemes to save, uh, to get, you know, to drive at a certain speed. So they uh, use less petrol and stuff like that. Everybody was incentivized. Wow. That was the you've got to sell. There's a comment you made on on a Facebook post, which I thought was quite interesting. That Philip Green admitted that fifty percent of the profits from Topshop they were from costume jewelry. Yeah, well, I uh, known Philip for years. Not a fan, I'd be the first one to say, because I believe that, uh, you know, a retail business needs love and care and it needs investment the whole time. He's an asset stripper. BHS and Topshop were ruined because they didn't have the oxygen of money. All the money went to him. So that is a terrible indictment. But nevertheless, I've always known him. Uh, and uh, it was funny enough, the day of my daughter's wedding at the Dorchester Hotel, and uh, he was living there, <laughs> and I arrived there and uh, got out the car, and he was standing there having a cigarette outside, and uh, he said to me that 50% of my profit from Topshop comes from costume jewellery. I said, that's ridiculous. How is that possible? He says, well, because the profit margin on costume jewellery is ginormous. It's like 10,000%. So even though it's perhaps only, it's still, we sell a lot of it, but it, we sell about 15% or 20% of our total turnover is costume jewelry. Because if you looked at the top shop in those days, you know, they all had a big stand on the counter of costume jewelry hanging down, and people used to buy it on impulse. But the margin was so high that even though the sales were only 15%, it contributed to 50% of the total profit. He, it was just phenomenal. And actually, somebody else who uh, was in costume jewelry used to supply um, the airlines. I looked at them again, and they were making an absolute fortune. You know, sometimes you look at, people don't realise, you know, you look at particular people and you see their lifestyle and you think, what are they doing? And you think, well, they're just another selling costume jewellery or that. But it's clearly that costume jewellery at that time, I don't know about now, was a business where you made huge margin. Huge margin is the most important thing in retail. You know, whereas uh, I tried to buy Dixon's once and I walked away from it because their gross margin was 27%. Very low on electricals because it's so cut price. Jewelry was 55%. But costume jewelry is 400% because nobody knew the value of costume jewelry. Costume jewelry costs nothing to produce and you can sell it for £10, £20. So while it lasted, it was a phenomenal business. And yes, uh, half of Topshop, which has never been reported, uh, half of Topshop's uh, profit came from costume jewelry. Wow. Not clothes. And all you ever talk about is their clothes and, you know, the fashion and thing. Nobody ever mentions the costume jewellery. So that's why in business you always have to look further than the headline. 
was really interesting because I would always just associate Topshop with clothing. You knew that they would always sell the jewellery, but it was, I always thought it was tended to be a little bit overpriced, you know, for costume jewellery in places like Topshop. The reason was it was overpriced because a lot of it was nicked. To to sell costume jewellery, you can't put it behind glass like you can with real jewellery. Yeah, so people would steal that it. That was tremendous risk to just leave jewellery hanging out there on hooks for everybody to try on mm. so they could steal it. And they did. But that didn't matter because the profit margin was so high uh, that they could they could uh, accept 10% shrinkage, which is massive. I mean, we had 2% shrinkage. They had 10% shrinkage. But they didn't care. They took the right view. Yes, we're going to get a lot of it stolen. But unless we do that, we're not going to sell it. So you've got to be objective, you know. I know somebody once had a, somebody who ran a fish and chip shop, and he said, "Oh, he's on the fiddle completely," um, but he's a brilliant. He's brilliant at running the fish and chip shop. I, I'm taking it back three times more than I would with anybody else. So I just let him uh, steal. <laughs> I just take that view. Uh, but as long as we're not partners anymore, if he steals more than I'm getting, then I'll sack him. But uh, mm, I was in business back in his day. My granddad was very successful, and then he—I remember—he lost everything at one point. He was in, in fireplace business, but it was generally um, catering that they were in. And they had a very successful transport cafe in Sedgefield. So you remember Sedgefield Tony Blair's constituency? Absolutely, um, yes. And it's—it's it's a nice hotel on the green. And Nana and Grandad had that as a as a transport cafe, and um, my grandfather was well known for his Charlie special. Yeah, everyone used to go to the cafe for his Charlie special, and I, I remember him admitting to me one day. He said there was nothing special about it. He said I just used so basically Charlie special was a full English breakfast, yeah. and he said I just used to put it put it on a bigger plate. <laughs> and I'd bulk it out with he's a, he's a Yorkshire man and he's and he'd be in, and I'd bulk it out with beans <laughs> and maybe put him next to a rasher of bacon on there so people thought they were actually people thought they were actually getting a lot more than they were but the reason I mentioned my grandfather because I remember they had a one of a pinball machine in the in the cafe and I remember him saying to me that that was a little gold mine the money they used to take from that machine I know a lot of these uh, restaurants, you know, fish and chip places like that. And I knew this guy who used to sell flowers in Covent Garden. He had more money than I, he used to bring out these wads of notes, 50 pound notes, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting what you're saying about that he's bulking out the plate with baked beans because, you know, we used to sell diamond rings uh, with illusion settings that made the diamond a lot bigger than it was because it had a bit of white gold cut up round the setting. And Alan Sugar always used to say a mug's eyeful with his computers, you know. Uh, he wasn't calling them mugs, but you know, that was a reference to a, a customer. Um, that it looked a lot more than it was. You bulk it out, uh, which is the key to it. So that applies to baked beans as it does to computers, uh, to diamond rings, Make it added value. Yeah, definitely. It's something called illusion, isn't it? Didn't Toblerone do That's something right, an illusion similar? Group. Sorry? Toblerone, they did something similar. I think the bars got smaller well, or something. I, I, I yeah. Well, they're doing it all the time. They're doing it all the time, uh, making it look bigger when it's fat, it's smaller. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the key to it. 
Uh, but we had a ring uh, called an illusion ring, which would be about a 10-point diamond, which is a tenth of a carat. But it looked like a half a carat because it was set with a white gold disc around it. Uh, so at first glance, because you don't look, when you see somebody, you don't put your nose right up to their hand on a ring. You look at it from a distance. So you would never know that. And uh, it, it, we used to display our rings at 42 inches from the ground because the average woman was five foot four and the trajectory of her eye would fall at that point. So we're making a very small item look very big, much more important than it really was. Marketing, that's good marketing. It's fair to say that we've, we're experiencing the death, we've, or we've experienced the death of the high street. Where do you see like malls going in the future? I think they're going to go almost the same way as the high street and that malls are going to turn into, I don't know, maybe entertainment places or, or something. Because more and more people are just shopping online these days. Well, I wrote an article in the Mail on Sunday, page article in uh, the spring of last year, where I said the high streets are dead, turn them into houses instead. And I said, that's a bit harsh. But in fact, then the government said the same thing about six months later. Because like I was saying before, if something is dead, something's not working, if you're in a job that, uh, my book, Reinvention, if you're in a job that's not working, move jobs. If you're in a marriage that's not working, end the marriage if you I'm a firm believer that you have to face up to the I didn't you know for seven years uh, when I was watching Countdown but I've learned you do learn from your mistakes that if something is not working it's not going to just change by itself you know if you're not earning any money you're not going to discover oil at the end of your garden an oil well um, as much as you will win the lottery as much you might hope so the fact is the evidence is clear. The high street is dead. It's finished. And there's a lot of people who wouldn't buy online, who've had to buy online, and they quite like it. And could, reason being, because it's cheaper and better, and uh, it's just more convenient. I mean, I know there are exceptions, trying on stuff and stuff like that, but by and large, you can shop around a lot easier for price, you get a money-back guarantee service. It arrives very quickly. Uh, you can compare with other products. It's very difficult. You know, if you see something in one shop, you have to go to another shop. Then you've forgotten what price it was. You can just do it so easily online. Uh, and also, you know, it's not great walking around the high streets in the pouring rain. Uh, parking is not helpful. Uh, there's a lot of shops now in the high street that shouldn't have been there. And I don't want to sound uncharitable, but the government allowing charity shops to go in there without paying rates was ridiculous because they had a proliferation of charity shops in high streets, um, which don't attract people. People don't get out and they say, oh, let's go to the, the Saturday afternoon. Let's go down to the high street so we can go to the, see what the charity shops have got. I mean, and then you've got the banks that have all closed. Um, there's not a bank that I ever, they're all going to close. HSBC have announced today they're closing 86 banks. There's no reason to go to a bank anymore. So everything's closing. Betting shops. I mean, what is the attraction of the high street? Nil compared to the internet. So the high street will go and it's going 
very fast. Um, they are the very small type of high streets where you've got the nice butchers still doing and the little tea shops. But the, by and large, the city centre high streets are finished. As And I think the, the, the malls as well uh, will be the next to go. When I started, all we had was the high streets in the 1960s. There was no internet. There was no malls. There was no out-of-town shopping. Now, of those four, the weakest is the high street. The second weakest is, is the malls. Uh, there's just not enough money to sustain uh, that amount of shopping with the way that the internet's going. And the internet's only going to go one way. And I've been saying this for 10, 15 years in my speeches, that the internet is only going to get bigger. It's not going to get smaller. There's a lot of drawbacks with the internet. You know, it's ridiculous, you know, people just looking at their phones all day long. That's the way it's going. No, so I, I was on holiday uh, in Dubai and uh, wonderful weather, lovely hotel, beautiful swimming pool and beach. And I'm walking from my, the beach to, my, to the hotel lobby. And as I pass, every single person is on the phone. I mean, the last thing you want to do is be on the phone when you've got this lovely weather and out in the fresh air. But that's it. You know, people are more interested in the phone than doing anything else. You know, I nearly ran somebody over the other day because they were just looking at the photos sort of crossing the road. Yeah, I was in my People car were, yesterday yeah. and a policeman passed me and he was on the phone. Yeah, yeah. There's no, ex I don't know what this, if you go on a train, I guarantee you stand up by the door, you look down the carriageway, 95% of everybody is staring at their phone. So you don't need to be a genius to realise that if you want to sell something, sell it to somebody who's looking at a phone. Yeah. That's where your audience is. I always learned years ago, my uncle, who was the uh, property estates manager in the company, estates director, he wouldn't like me calling him manager, estates director, he always said to me, whatever you do, take a shop. We always take a shop where there's crowds going past. Never take a shop where it's empty. Now, the phone is the equivalent of, of Oxford Street, crowds going past. I walked down Oxford Street recently. I know we're in the middle of a pandemic, but it's empty. There's no one. And even when the pandemic ends, it's never going to be as busy as it was because people are looking at their phones. They're buying on their phones. They don't need to go to Oxford Street. That's the way it is. I'm not saying it's good. I don't care whether it's good or bad, but as a retailer, that's where it's at. And I think we've been going that way a long time now, but with Corona and what's happened with COVID, it seems to have elevated it a lot quicker. Exactly. People have we've, we've moved seven years in, in a year. 100%. I remember you, I think it was you, you were giving an example of just when you were being interviewed by Rob about your wife would never shop online. I mean, that used to be me. I physically used to love going into the store and I still do. I still like to go in in Zara and, and try the clothes on in there. Do order a lot more online now just because of the convenience. And yes, just she never understood. Yeah. And until, she, you, she, until she, you do it, until you try it, you don't actually realise yeah. how much easier it is. Well, she never liked buying online. She liked the shops, but she's bought online this year and she won't go back to, uh, she'll carry on with it now. We're creatures of habit. Mm -hmm. So the pandemic has accelerated it. There's no question about that. Do you still have your online jewellery business? Well, I just feel that uh, selling online for the reasons I gave before, uh, the cost of it, uh, it's, the reason that attracted me 
was that I could get my product to the customer at a much with lower overheads because having a jewelry shop, you have to have lighting, you have to have rent, you have to have staff. Uh, it's not like it's one of the few things where people can't help themselves, like in supermarkets and stuff, clothing shops. So we started switching to uh, supplying other retailers because I'm partners with uh, an Indian factory. And they originally, they went into partnership with me because they wanted to sell their product in the UK, which we did successfully through uh, Gerald Online, through the online business. But we've been switching now more and more uh, into supplying other people. So we're, we're, our online business comes and goes. It comes at Christmas and goes, goes offline. So the only time you make a profit in the jewellery business is Christmas. So that's the only time we're online. But the rest of the year, we're supplying shopping channels, Amazon, uh, other retailers and stuff like that, which we find is more lucrative that the margins uh, online have disintegrated. So I'm a margin man. We used to make very high margins when we started, we can't do that anymore. So that doesn't attract me. I'm do turnover is vanity, profit is sanity. I love that. And on that note, Gerald, thank you very much for being a fantastic guest and for your time it's today. Been a pleasure to meet you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. I mean this is um this chat has been over a year in the making. I remember I approached yeah. you over a year ago and you politely told me that you didn't like doing interviews. Oh, right. Oh, sorry about that. Okay. Well, I've got I, no choice. Yet. I knew I would get to speak to you eventually. I had a, like, a quiet self-confidence. So, I'm, yeah, I'm really happy. Yeah, one of my rules is never to give up. And that is what you didn't, that you didn't give up. <laughs> <laughs>